If only dogs could talk, this baffling cold case might be solved. Nearly 30 years ago, the Springfield Three, a mother, her daughter, and the daughter's friend vanished without a trace in Springfield, Missouri. Cinnamon, the pet Yorkie, was the only witness, and she wasn't talking. But not for lack of trying. The police brought in a psychic who swore she could get answers. Spoiler alert, she didn't. But with only a broken porch light, a few obscene phone calls, and a mysterious green van sighting to work with, that's the level of desperation they were at. This case has stumped investigators to this day. So many questions remain unanswered, but we firmly believe in the power of crowdsourcing. So let me lay it out for you and see what you can come up with. Hi, I'm Chris, and this is True Crime Recaps. Every week, my wife Amy and I are bringing you all the crime in half the time. Now, if that sounds good to you, don't go away without tapping subscribe. It only takes a second, but it means the world to us. Now, on with one of the most puzzling unsolved disappearances you'll ever hear. 47-year-old Cheryl Levitt, her 19-year-old daughter Susie Streeter, and Susie's friend, 18-year-old Stacy McCall, were reported missing on Sunday, June 7, 1992. The day was supposed to be a celebration, a continuation of a party that started the night before with Stacy and Susie's high school graduation. The girls had been friends since second grade, but over the years they drifted towards separate groups and it was rare to see the two of them hanging out alone together. Susie worked in a local movie theater, but she was planning to get her cosmetologist's license. Her mother, Cheryl, was a popular hairstylist, and Susie was hoping to work in the same salon. Stacy had a job as a receptionist at a gymnastic center, and she did some part-time modeling for a local bridal shop. She was headed to Missouri State in the fall, but the future was still a whole summer away, and on that June weekend, Susie and Stacy were focused on fun. The plan was to hit up some grad night parties, then head 40 miles south to Branson with a group of mutual friends. They were going to spend the night in a motel there and spend Sunday at the water park. Graduation ceremonies went from about 4 to 6 p.m. on Saturday, June 6th. The next couple of hours were spent with family. Susie and Stacy met up again around 8.30 p.m. at a mutual friend's house. Janelle Kirby lived in Battlefield, about 10 minutes away from Springfield. They all decided to meet at her place because there was a party going on next door. But only two hours into the night at 10.30 p.m., Stacy called her mom to let her know their plans were changing. They weren't driving to Branson that night after all. They were going to sleep at Janelle's place instead. And she promised to call her mother again before they left for the water park in the morning. After she hung up, the girls drove back to Springfield headed to another party. But it was already pretty crowded and the police broke it up around 1.40 a.m. on Sunday morning, June 7, 1992. From there, the girls went back to Janelle's house in Battlefield, but they didn't stay there long. Janelle had family visiting for the weekend, so the sleeping arrangements were already cramped and the girls were dreading crashing out on the floor. That's when Susie made a last-minute suggestion. She and her mother, Cheryl, had just moved into a new house two months earlier, and a week earlier, she got a brand-new king-size waterbed as a graduation present. If Stacy was up for it, the two of them could sleep there instead and go to Branson in the morning. Stacy said yes, and they left Janelle's place around 2.15-ish, heading back to Springfield with Stacy following Susie in her car. That was the last time the girls were seen alive. From here on out, There's less information to work with. By all appearances, the girls arrived safely at Cheryl's house, took off their makeup, and crawled into bed. But by 8 a.m., when Janelle and other friends started calling the house, no one was picking up. 
Their cars were all parked at the house. That's the first thing Janelle and her boyfriend Mike noticed when they came over later that day. Susie's red Ford Escort had pulled into the circular driveway first. It was facing east. Stacy's red Toyota was close behind it. Cheryl's blue Mitsubishi was in the carport. At first glance, the cars didn't raise any eyebrows, but later, Susie's best friend noticed something was off. Susie always parked under the carport. If her mother's car was already there, then she would have pulled up right behind it, facing west. But on that morning, her car was facing the opposite direction. Was another vehicle in her usual spot when they got there? If yes, it would explain why she pulled into the driveway from the other side. The next thing Janelle and Mike noticed was the front porch light. The light bulb was on, but the glass fixture around the bulb was shattered on the ground. But how did the fixture break in the first place, and why? It's the type of porch light with the bulb facing down. Was the fixture so loosely attached that it dropped to the ground when a door slammed? Did something knock into it and dislodge it without breaking the bulb inside? Or was it deliberately smashed to make someone inside open the door and check on the noise? We may never know the answers to that because Mike swept it up and threw the glass away. He did it as a favor to Cheryl. They knew she liked things tidy, but the police never got the chance to see it as it was that morning. There were no signs of forced entry. The door was unlocked when they tried it. They called for Stacy, Susie, and Cheryl, but the only creature to come running was Cinnamon. Janelle told the Springfield News leader that the little Yorkshire Terrier jumped into her arms when she opened the door. It was immediately obvious the dog was anxious and scared, but what had traumatized her? There were no signs of struggle, and a check of the house revealed nothing too out of the ordinary. The living room and kitchen were tidy, and Susie's graduation cake was still in the fridge untouched. Both beds looked like they'd been slept in. Cheryl's covers were thrown back, and there was a book laid out like she'd been reading before something got her out of bed. Susie's space was a typical mess, but there were a few things that stood out as unusual. For one thing, all three of their purses, Cheryl's, Stacy's, and Susie's, were lined up next to each other on the floor in front of the steps leading down to Susie's sunken bedroom. So that's strange, but nothing seemed to be missing from their bags. Cheryl had almost $800 in cash that wasn't touched. She and Susie were smokers, but their cigarettes and lighters were left behind along with their keys. Stacy suffered from migraines, but her prescription meds were still in her purse. So was her little makeup bag. Her shoes, bra, swimsuit, and flowered shorts were neatly folded and stacked together. Her jewelry was stored safely in one of the pockets. If she had left voluntarily, she was only wearing her t-shirt and underwear. She didn't have any other clothes with her, and she didn't wear the same size as Susie. There was also an empty picture frame on a shelf. What used to be there? And who took the picture and why? Did Susie take the picture out? The TV and window blinds were the only other signs that something sinister might have happened in that room. The TV was on, but the picture was only static, and the window blinds were pulled apart in one area as if someone had been peering out. Meanwhile, back at Stacy's house, her mom was starting to wonder why she hadn't heard from her daughter that morning, as promised. And by noon, she was so annoyed about it, she called Janelle's house. Janelle's sister told her the girls spent the night at Susie's instead, so she called over there and left Stacy the first of many call-home messages on Cheryl's machine. She was concerned, but not alarmed, not yet. She went to the beach with Stacy's two older sisters and the rest of the family as planned. Mike and Janelle were in and out of Cheryl's house on June 7th. In between checking to see if the women had returned to the house, they popped into another friend's place and they visited a sandwich shop nearby. 
At some point, they checked the messages on Cheryl's answering machine. That may sound like a strange thing to do, but let me explain. Janelle had left a few messages earlier that morning, and she thought she should check the machine to find out if anyone had listened to them. But here's where it gets convoluted. According to the Springfield News Leader, the machine contained a strange message from an unknown man. It was recorded on Friday, June 5th, but a well-meaning someone accidentally deleted it, and it's never been recovered. The article doesn't name names, and it may not have been Janelle that erased it. Stacy's mom described it as a lewd message, but she doesn't remember specifics. So why would Cheryl and Susie have saved the message in the first place? They must have heard it. Everything was normal up until late Saturday night, but here's where it gets even stranger. When Janelle and Mike were in Cheryl's house on June 7th, she answered two obscene phone calls that afternoon. But the police seemed to think only the deleted answering machine message was relevant. So there's a lot to unpack here. It seems strange that police are so quick to dismiss the call Janelle picked up. Now, I'm no detective, but isn't that a pretty big coincidence? Two obscene calls on the same day three women are reported missing? And how did he just happen to call while Janelle and Mike were in the house? And let me take it one step further. If the caller was connected to the disappearances, they needed to be positioned close enough to see Janelle and Mike in the house. Now keep in mind, this was an era before everyone had a cell phone. So that would mean that they either lived nearby or they were parked nearby and could get to a payphone fast enough to make the call. Now, before I move on from this part of the case, you should also know something else. A 36-year-old man was arrested in December 1992 for making dozens of obscene calls in the area. Now, some reports assume he was the caller in this situation, but was he really? According to the Springfield News Leader, that man was prank calling the families of elementary school kids using phone numbers he got from a Watkins Elementary enrollment file that he stole from an unlocked office in August of that year. So he probably wasn't the guy making lewd calls to Cheryl's house in June. Those three calls remain an unexplained strange aspect of this case. And just like every other possible clue, it's hard to know if they mean anything or if they're just another red herring. By sundown, with no word from any of the women, at least 10 people, Janelle, Mike, Stacy's parents, and some other close friends, reconvened at Cheryl's house to try and figure out what was going on. Unfortunately, what they didn't know at the time was that they were destroying any evidence the police might have been able to gather from a possible crime scene. They tidied up, emptied ashtrays, and washed dishes. They pulled out Cheryl's book of contacts and made some calls. Her two ex-husbands lived in the Seattle area where she was from. Her first husband, Susie's father, wasn't in the picture at all. Her second husband, a man she'd divorced two years earlier, was remarried and didn't have any contact with him, but his daughter stayed close to her former stepmother. And with her help and the help of some other friends, they managed to piece together Cheryl's activities the night before. She was seen at the graduation ceremony cheering Susie on. After that, by all accounts, she had a quiet night to herself. She painted a chest of drawers, the house still smelled of it, and hung some wallpaper. Reports differ on the time of her last phone call. Some say she talked to a friend at 9 p.m., others say it was closer to 11.15. She was expecting her daughter to be gone for the night, and her friends say she wasn't dating anyone, so the idea that she asked a man over seems unlikely. But then again, remember Susie's parking job? It sure made it look like another vehicle was in her usual space. 
But on June 7th, these kinds of questions weren't being asked out loud yet. On that first day, they didn't call the police until it was well and truly dark and the women still weren't home. Two officers came by, took their statement, checked the house, and ushered them all out, locking the door behind them. They left a note for Cheryl to call the police when she got home. But Cheryl, Susie, and Stacy were never seen again. It was a high-priority case from the start. Search parties were formed, the FBI and Highway Patrol were called in. Within a week, the case was featured on America's Most Wanted, and thousands of tips poured in. Neighbors described a drifter with dark hair and a full beard. He'd been hanging around the area a week before. A sketch of him was passed around town. One woman who lived a few miles away said she saw an older model Dodge van, possibly green, turning around in the driveway of the house next door to her around 6 a.m. on the morning of June 7th. She said the driver looked like a scared Susie Streeter, and then she claimed she heard a man's voice saying, Okay, don't make any silly moves. Back up slowly and turn around. The man was supposedly wearing a yellow t-shirt. The last time she was seen, Stacy was wearing a yellow top. Although, it's doubtful the man would be wearing a woman's scoop neck t-shirt. All in all, it sounded like a wild tip, and it can't be easy to hear someone inside a van from the porch next door. But, she wasn't the only one to report it. The next sighting was in a grocery store parking lot not far away from Cheryl's house. A man saw a young blonde waiting there in a van that morning. Something creepy about it made him write down the license plate number, but it must not have been creepy enough because... He threw the number away before he called it in. He was hypnotized for it, but he could only remember the first three digits. But police still parked a similar-looking van outside the station, hoping the sight of it might jog someone else's memory. Then there were a couple of people who claimed they saw the three women together in the early morning hours of June 7th. A waitress from one of Cheryl's favorite restaurants, George's Steakhouse, said she saw them at a diner sometime between 1 and 3 a.m., but that didn't lead anywhere. Another clerk at a convenience store near Cheryl's old neighborhood said she came in around 2.15 a.m. asking if he'd seen her daughter and two friends, but that lead also turned up nothing. The Springfield News Leader reported that he'd actually seen a different woman looking for different teenagers. Lead after lead hit a dead end, and the crime scene had been trampled by well-meaning friends and family, leaving them almost no viable fingerprints or other evidence to work with. So the investigation focused on one question. Who was the target? Susie and Stacy were not supposed to be there that night. The decision to stay at Cheryl's house was made at the last minute. If one or both the girls were targeted, then their attacker followed them from Janelle's house at two-something in the morning. Now, if Cheryl was the target, then why did the attacker wait until Susie and Stacy were home to make his move? If it was a random attack, why would someone take the risk with three cars parked out front? And the biggest question... How were the three women taken from the house? The answer to that question goes a couple of different ways. One theory is that Cheryl was already incapacitated when Susie and Stacy walked in. The attacker was hiding out somewhere in the house and took the girls at gunpoint out to the waiting vehicle. Another theory is that all three of them were lured out. If someone dressed as a police officer or utility person knocked on the door and told them they were in danger, well, that might have done it. But would they have left all their things behind, their purses, keys, and wallets? The first suspect was Cheryl's son, Bart Streeter, Susie's older brother. As far as motive, means, and opportunity went, he looked good for it. Any one of the women would have opened the door to a family member. And his drinking had created a problem between the three of them for the past few months, which the police figured could go to motive. 
But yet again, another lead went cold. Bart had an alibi of sorts. He claimed he was home drunk on Saturday night until Sunday afternoon. Obviously, that's a hard alibi to verify, but he passed a polygraph and was officially ruled out as a suspect. Roughly three months after the disappearance, he left town, and to this day, he's never really gotten out from under the cloud of suspicion that followed him from the beginning. And in 2019, he didn't help his case when he was arrested in Tennessee on suspicion of public intoxication, disorderly conduct, and attempted false imprisonment of a 15-year-old girl. Now, I know we're skipping pretty far ahead here, but we can't move off of Bart until you hear this strange story. Apparently, he walked into a nail salon and told staff the girl was his granddaughter and he needed to take her with him. Obviously, the girl didn't know him and neither did anyone else, so she didn't leave with him and the cops were called. It doesn't look like it led anywhere and the Streeter family released a statement saying the whole thing was blown out of proportion, but even if you look at it with one eye closed, it still looks bizarre. In any case, he's always maintained his innocence. So, Let's go back to the early 90s, because Bart wasn't the only person of interest. Susie's ex-boyfriend, Dustin Reckla, and his friend Michael Clay were also on their radar, and you won't believe why. They were facing trial for grave robbing, if you can believe it. In February 1992, about four months before the three women vanished, Dustin, Michael, and another friend, Joseph Rydell, broke into a local cemetery, smashed through a mausoleum window, set one corpse's hair on fire, and sold $30 worth of gold fillings from the head of a second corpse while they were all high on acid. The skull was later found in a tree in a nearby park. Susie was allegedly going to testify against them at that trial. They seemed like strong suspects in her disappearance, but all three men were cleared after passing polygraphs. Although two years later, in 1994, Dustin was one of a handful of people who appeared before a closed-session grand jury. He was there to answer questions about his relationship with Susie. But whatever came out of that has been kept out of the public. In mid-1993, the investigation focused on a man named Steve Garrison, a self-proclaimed outlaw biker. He was arrested on weapons charges about a year after the disappearances, and someone else said he'd bragged about the murders. When he was released on bond, they set him up in a hotel room. The thinking was that he would be willing to talk more freely out of prison. But he ran for it. He was in the wind for 20 days, and during that time, he robbed and raped a college student at Missouri State University in Springfield. He got 40 years for that, but they did manage to get a statement out of him about the missing women. He claimed they were buried in the next county over, but a search of the area turned up nothing of note. Then in 1996, another promising suspect came back into the picture, someone with a long history of violent crimes and a loose connection to the missing women a former army ranger by the name of Robert Craig Cox. Now, let me run down his criminal resume for you real quick. In 1986, he pleaded guilty to kidnapping and assault in California. He got nine years for that, but only two years into his sentence, he was extradited to Florida to stand trial for the murder of a 19-year-old. She disappeared after leaving work at Disney World on December 30th, 1978. Ironically, Robert was named Soldier of the Year in 1979. The girl's badly beaten body was later found in an orange grove outside of Orlando. But he wasn't convicted for her murder until 1988, and the guilty verdict didn't stick. One year later, his conviction was overturned on a technicality. But he didn't walk free. Not yet. He was sent back to California to finish serving out his prison term for the kidnapping there. 
But then one year after that, in 1990, he was paroled. And guess where he went from there? Back to the city where he grew up, Springfield, Missouri. At the time the women went missing, he had a job as a utility worker, and he worked part-time as a mechanic at the car lot where Stacy's father was a salesman. Stacy and her friend stopped by the lot every once in a while, and it wouldn't be a huge stretch of the imagination to think he noticed her and was stalking her. With his rap sheet, police interviewed him right away in 1992, but his girlfriend at the time gave him an alibi. Get this. She said he spent the night of June 6th with her, and the two of them were in church the next morning. Church. But by 1996, he was back in prison serving a life sentence for holding up a hair salon at gunpoint in Texas in 1994. That conviction, combined with a surprise confession from his former girlfriend, put him back on the Springfield police radar. She admitted that Robert wasn't with her on that June weekend. He had told her to lie for him if anyone asked. And when a reporter from KY3 News traveled to Texas to interview him about the Springfield case, Robert said he knew for a fact that the women were dead and their bodies would never be found. Then he said he wouldn't give any more details about it until his own mother was dead. Today, Robert is still in prison in Texas and he's 62 years old. Apparently, his mother is still alive or else he changed his mind because he's never given any other information about the case. Unfortunately, he's also known as an attention-seeking liar and without a more detailed confession leading them to their bodies, he couldn't be charged. Then, last but not least, you have Larry DeWayne Hall. Now, this guy is a serial killer who grew up in a cemetery in Wabash, Indiana. His father was the caretaker and Larry and his twin brother Gary helped out by digging graves. He's been linked unofficially to more than 50 murders and abductions in multiple states, although he's only been convicted of one, the 1993 kidnapping and rape of a 15-year-old girl. He's been in prison since 1995, but before he was captured, he and his twin were Civil War and classic car buffs who traveled to reenactments and car shows in a van on the weekends. Larry was allegedly stalking, kidnapping, and killing women wherever they went. And take a look at this. With his dark hair and full beard, Larry sure looks a lot like the police sketch of the transient seen around Cheryl's house before they disappeared. Springfield is about eight hours from Wabash, but that's nothing to a guy like Larry, who had no problem driving even farther than that to visit Civil War sites. And Missouri was a particularly bloody battleground. For example, the Battle of Wilson's Creek was fought just miles outside of Springfield, and on the weekend the women disappeared, a car show was being held in Ava, only an hour away. And then, of course, there's the fact that his twin Gary says he admitted to murdering the three women. Unfortunately, like many killers, Larry admitted to a lot of murders and then recanted. Larry is also pretty short. Now, that's relevant because he targeted mostly petite women, just like Cheryl, Stacy, and Susie were. But Springfield police say they cleared him after he passed a polygraph and gave conflicting statements that didn't fit the facts of the case. Current information about him is hard to find, but as of 2016, he was still in prison in North Carolina. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a strong case to be made against each and every one of these guys when it comes to this case. But despite some strong contenders, no one has ever been arrested or charged, and the bodies of the three women have never been found. But that doesn't mean there aren't some loud and widespread theories about where they might be. Over the years, there's been several searches following up credible leads, but each and every one of them has been a dead end, except for one. And that's because the police refused to pursue it. So here it is. See what you think. 
The most widely known theory is that the women are buried underneath a hospital parking garage in Springfield. The theory was brought to investigators in 2006, but ultimately they decided there wasn't enough evidence to spend the money it would take to chase it down. Part of their reasoning was based on the fact that the parking garage in question was built in 1993, more than a year after the women disappeared. But get this, a local reporter hired a mechanical engineer to go over the spot with a ground-penetrating radar machine, and lo and behold, three anomalies were spotted under the concrete. The engineer says they're similar in shape and size to what you might find in a graveyard. But the police still refused to take a core sample and test for human decomposition, even though, by all accounts, the hospital that owns the garage says they're more than welcome to do what they need to do. So why not just find out once and for all if the anomalies seen on the radar are construction debris or the missing women? Well, you know how it is. It's expensive and they think the tip is garbage despite what the radar picked up. And who knows? Maybe they're right. The guilty party would have had to bury the three women deep enough that they weren't found during construction on the parking garage. Which actually might not have been too tough of a job for a guy like Larry Dwayne Hall. If you remember, he grew up in a cemetery and earned his allowance digging graves. Of course, he'd also have to bury three bodies without being seen in a fairly busy area of town, even though it was just an abandoned lot before the hospital took it over. But honestly, almost 30 years after their disappearance, with no other real leads to go on, why not just check it out and put this lead to rest? And that's where the case is now. No closer to being solved than it was when they vanished in 1992. So what do you think? Is the parking job at Cheryl's house a clue? Did the front porch light fixture fall off accidentally or was it deliberately broken? Are the obscene phone calls part of this case? And what about the state of Susie's room? Are we missing the message that the purses, missing picture, TV, and window blinds are trying to tell us? Who did this and why? And where are the Springfield Three? Let's hear your theories. Thank you so much for spending your time with me today. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, please take a minute to subscribe and give this a five-star review. It really helps us spread the word about the show. Let's do this again next week. Until then, take care.